Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. I think that the the story that he's gonna be sharing with us is quite remarkable. You know, everything started starting from like really spinning off uh, a very exciting uh, business out of the company that he was working previously. Uh, but again, I mean the growth that they have experienced is remarkable. Uh, so I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rory Kelleher. Welcome to the show. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks a million for having me. So originally born and raised there in Dublin. So how was life growing up there? A lot of time. I, I, I really like Ireland. I had a, an American mother, so I did get to spend quite a bit of time on the west coast of the US over in San Francisco, visiting my grandparents at the time. Uh, but yeah, outside of the weather, uh, Dublin is a great place to, to, to grow up. Uh, I still live here today, so I think that tells a lot that uh, glad to be here. Um you know, it's actually sunny today, and so that's, you know, a rarity here. So when the sun does shine in Ireland, it's, it's one of the best places in the world. So if we could just get that all the time, it would be great. But um, from a living perspective, I think there's very few places in the world that are as good as Ireland. I hear you. I hear you. And and obviously, you know, I'm wondering if having your mother being from, from the U.S., perhaps, you know, that, that mindset, the American dream, the ambition, and all of those things, you know, like maybe you got inspired by it, and, and maybe one day, you know, you, you told yourself perhaps growing up that one day you would have your own business or make a, a big difference as a, as a business person. I mean, would that be the case? Yeah, I, I never thought about it exactly like that, but like when I do look at it, like some like my, my mother's father, who's actually Irish, so ironically, full circle, uh, he did, he went to America uh, during World War II. And, and became very successful um, construction company out in San Francisco. So, you know, I did grow up around that, that, you, you know, you could achieve anything. And, and, you know, the U.S. is a great place to do that for, you know, an Irish, an Irish, young Irish guy going over there in his kind of early 20s and to end up with a really successful big uh, construction company in, in San Francisco shows, like, you know, the opportunity that is America, you know, and, and that that ideology of the American dream is, is something that's very true. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I travel a lot to the U.S. or I used to travel a lot to the U.S. before the last year and look forward to going back again. But, you know, what does strike me in the U.S. every time I'm there is the entrepreneurship, the the ability to 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 grow business, to to live out your dream. And, you know, it can be a little bit corny, but it actually it really is true. 
And do you think that maybe like uh, now, as you've been able to compare and and all of that, you know, would you say that maybe in Dublin things are there in Ireland, like things are starting to opening up uh, a bit more, where you don't have to be a lawyer or a banker or a consultant, and it's still going to be well viewed if if you decide to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's it's definitely coming more and more so. Um, like you know, when you've got a lot of the big tech organizations here, you know, Salesforce, Google, Facebook. A lot of the Stripe, a lot of the big ones have big headcounts here. Like, you know, from a, from overseas, it can come across that they're here for tax purposes, but they're not. They're here for, you know, they have huge headcounts here. Like, you know, they've put down roots in the US, in, in Ireland as their, as their European headquarters. So, you know, from when I finished college back in the early 2000s to now, it's it's wildly different in terms of the opportunities. Even when you look at, at the graduate rounds and, you know, the, the old milk grounds of going into the consulting firms, the big four accounting firms and the law firms. Uh, a lot of the top talent is looking elsewhere now to get into to these different types of organizations. And there's, there's not yet a clear path, which is interesting. You know, we actually have a sister company called Grad Guide that was kind of set up just to support that in terms of trying to help graduates into those, kind of find a path into those organizations. Yeah, I, I think definitely in Ireland, you know, I think we are still slower than the U.S., I think we're still a bit more cautious than the US, though I think that if that impacts our kind of venture ecosystem, it's not as 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 risk as risky as the US or risk doesn't have the risk appetite of the US. So, you know, I still think we, we have a bit to go on that, but I certainly think we're going in the right direction. Very cool. So in your case, you know, like the direction that you took was to go to university and uh, basically studying a combination of business and law. But very early on, you knew that being a lawyer was not your thing. So, so how did you come across, or how did you end up thinking that way? Yeah, uh, I think I wanted to be a lawyer because, for your kind of reasons that you said earlier, it was kind of a, it was a very stable, um, you know, somewhat sexy kind of thing to do was to become a lawyer or, or a banker or an accountant. Um, after one of the first, one of the first in in law in in first year in law in Ireland, two of your first courses are land law constitutional law and both of them put me to sleep very very quickly so i realized very very early that i didn't have the i didn't have the discipline to to or the yeah to, to do that much reading around subjects that are just not that interesting so uh very quickly i didn't really have the appetite for it and uh focused more on the on the business side and i've, I've always loved maths maths and problem solving so like you know, even to this day, we're talking about payroll. It's around, you know, mathematical numbers, you know, analytics and solutioning problems is really what what, what it is and what global payroll is. And it, that's always something I really, really enjoyed was, you know, solutioning. And in law, that takes a long, long time. Absolutely. So so then as a result of, of that, you graduated, then you got into retail, then management consultancy. Uh, and I guess, you know, this landed you eventually, you know, working at Taxback and, and that's essentially where you really, you know, got exposed to, to the problem that you're currently solving uh, with the business, you know, that you've started. But, you know, I'd like to hear, you know, like how that experience was for you, what you were seeing, especially when you went more on the international side uh, and how was that journey for you, you know, which was a pivotal, you know, um, kind of like initiation into perhaps you becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, like, so when I joined Taxback, you know, we were there, or the business at the time was, was really launching its first B2B product on the, on the tax side. And Taxback, from its founder, Terry Kloon, who founded Taxback back in the mid-90s, coming out of, um, out of university to, again, to solve the problem. 
is always an incredible entrepreneur and still is to this day an incredibly entrepreneurial environment to work in. Um, you know, it's about seizing opportunities that are global. Big and global is generally, you know, when, when I speak to Terry, what the what the ambition and the drive is all about. Um, so when I came in in 2012, um, and in typical tax back fashion, which I subsequently found out, what they were trying to do was tackle a big market that was dominated by um, very slow-moving, large organizations. At the time, it was, the, it was the big four accountancy firms. So what we were going into was, you know, assignment management, which is still a very complex piece of tax work that any organization that sends someone overseas has to manage because you're managing tax and payroll in multiple jurisdictions at the same time and understanding how that ends and the cost and the service customer service element of that with an accounting firm was you know less than ideal because you're dealing with two almost separate organizations even though they may be the same name and like the big four, they're, they're generally kind of independent organizations. So you're dealing with two different people on two on two different sides of the assignment. Uh, and number one, it's a, it's a bad customer experience. And number two, it's very costly for the organization. So, you know, the, the group had noticed that through doing a lot of individual tax returns for, for people abroad, seeing the amount of corporates who just couldn't deal with that. So they ended up paying for it themselves. So we launched a product, the global mobility product, and you know we went straight into pitching it against the big four in big organizations. So I think that's part of our DNA and our ethos is to really go after you know problems that are on a global scale and try and solution them utilizing technology. And we did that from day one in the tax element of global mobility, and we won a number of big projects in that. Um, very early days, which kind of gave us the momentum to continue going. And payroll, obviously, you know, was, um, you know, became quite a, quite a substantial, um, you know, thing, you know, that, uh, that it was kind of like a breakthrough moment where the company perhaps understood that, that, you know, a spin-off or, or allocating more time and resources to it was what it makes sense. So, so why don't you walk us through, through that, you know, process, you know, through that sequence of events, because the people that are listening, you know, maybe they may be, a little bit more used to coming up with an idea and uh, and then really launching it and giving their notice, you know, at the at the corporation that they're working at. But in this case, you know, obviously there was an idea that came up, you know, that you were part of it, and that essentially ended up being a spin-off where you still had the partnership of the company that that you were working. Yeah, so like in global mobility tax, like one of the, one of the core key elements of it is, is payroll. So to do the withholding of tax for uh, assignees abroad. Payroll is one of the, the one of the main attributes to be able to do that. So we were running an element of payroll in doing what we were doing. But yeah, like I'll never forget it. So uh, myself and Mark Graham, who's our chief commercial officer now, um, sat down with Terry in the office uh, one day and we were kind of mapping out a strategy as to, you know, we felt that we needed to rebrand our section of tax back to give it a more standalone feel. Uh, because of taxback.com at the time and um, still is a very successful B2C business. Uh, a lot of it's based on student uh, tax returns and, you know, the tra- transient workforce. And uh, so we felt that that was confusing to our customer base when we were pitching to, to big corporates. So you know, at the time we were talking about re-brand, renaming a section of the business, but it actually ended up turning out into something, something much bigger because, you know, we sat down with Terry and I think like most brilliant entrepreneurs, you know, they look at things very simply at times, you know, they take away a lot of the confusion or a lot of the hypothesis. And, you know, we looked at it and we had a huge demand for running payroll on a local level for our, um, like a local international level for our um, 
big customers. A lot of demand was coming to us to do that for them. And, you know, quite simply, I'll never forget it. We sat there and, and, you know, Terry said, everyone in the world gets paid all of the time. Like, there's a very small proportion of them are expats. So why don't we target the bigger market instead of the smaller market? Which was a big shift in mentality for us. Uh, and it was a, it was out of our comfort zone because we were, at the time, we were very, very good at what we did and we were very, very good at selling what we did. Um, so to kind of somewhat kind of put a pause on that and go in a totally different direction and start from scratch again was a was a bit of a deep breath moment. But, you know, you know, when you look back on it, it's absolutely correct. Like the international payroll market was completely underserved, no utilization of technology, and the market is massive to go and attack. So, and I think that's, that shows now in what our customer looks like, our average customer size, our revenue growth um, shows that we made the right decision. That's amazing. And I know that once you made that decision, coming up with a name was also an interesting process. So tell us about coming up with a name. Yeah, I'd never done it before. <laughs> so there was, I remember who was there at the time. It was myself, Mark, Christine, uh, who was uh, who's our uh, kind of head of tax, Barry, who's now our head of customer, actually. Um, they were on the tax side at the time. We were still trying to figure out who we were and what we were going to be. Um, but it came down that we we we, we hired a, um, we hired a, a company, marketing uh, advertising company to do it. And they came back with four options, and I was outvoted four to one for a different name than Amidas. Um, but I really wanted Amidas because I liked the story behind it. Uh, eventually, I ended up winning because the other one that was voted for was going to cost us two hundred thousand euros to buy the domain name. So <laughs> I decided to go with Amidas. What's that? Uh, and I'm glad, delighted we did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting process, and uh, yeah, one that goes deeper than I thought it would. It always is. You know, most of the time, those URLs, they're like so expensive that it just makes sense to come up with something that is a little bit more affordable. That's for sure. So <laughs> I guess, for Rory, for the for the people that are listening to really get an idea of Imedis and, you know, the, the way that it works and how you guys are making money, what ended up being the business model? Yeah, so we're like, we're an international, global, we're a global player on platform. That's what we do. Um, we've developed a technology platform that consolidates global payroll for large enterprise um, companies and so in essence what we're, our main uh, customer profile is uh, you know big organizations that have already deployed a global HCM the likes of Workday, SuccessFactors, Oracle, Ceridian or UKG and, and we integrate with their platform because in, in most cases they'll run the US payroll out of those systems and then we integrate to run all of their rest of world population. Uh, through a single platform. So we consolidate the whole operation um, of a global payroll from input on through the HCM time and attendance system all the way through to the outputs into the financial management systems and into the employees and pay slips and manage all of the the payment flows and treasury flows uh, all across the world. So um, we're generally dealing with customers that are in 10 countries plus um, with you know over a thousand people outside of their home jurisdiction. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of big named organizations out of the US a lot and, and Europe is where we're dealing with them. Um, so, yeah, like they're big partnerships that we have and um, they're long term partnerships, you know, and it's a very important thing for anyone to get paid on time. So, you know, we've continued to invest in the platform itself. And I think we're kind of proud to say that I think the technology we've developed in it is, is, 
certainly very different and game changing than the very old school approach that payroll had for a long, long time. And I guess uh, in terms of, of raising capital, because I mean, here you're talking about investing and allocating resources into the development of the platform. I mean, obviously that requires money and everything requires money if you want to build something that is hyper growth. So I guess how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, first round, we did 25 million euros uh, through SEP, uh, Scottish Equity Partners in London. Been a brilliant partner for us. Uh, and then just before Christmas last year, we raised $50 million from Lead Edge Capital in New York. Um, and again, like a really great organization working with Keith and Brian um, for both organizations. It's been, you know, very different to what I think some of the scare stories of venture capital and private equity are um, so far. Anyway. No, absolutely. And, and I'm sure that the journey for you uh, has been remarkable. I mean, going from 10 employees to over 330 that you have today, you know, I'm sure that that at some points, you know, that growth maybe gave you some vertigo, you no, know, of the of the height, you know, and how fast, how quickly you were climbing. So, so how has it been for you? Because you know, I know that for founders, you know, typically it's not an easy journey. You know, people think that you know it's easy, but it's not because you need to grow at the same pace as the company is growing. So, how were you able to grow yourself at that same speed? Yeah, two two points. Like internally, we use the term sustainable hypergrowth. So, when we went for both fundings, it's probably the most critical thing that we talk about is is capability to continue to serve because this market has been underserved historically and the technology has let a lot of things, a lot of um, good ideas down because of an, either an underinvestment or an under a misunderstanding of the domain. It is a complicated domain uh, and it requires significant investment and, and understanding. So, you know, capability now from, from someone who's come from the commercial background, I would say I spent I spend still, I now spend the vast majority of my time on the operational and execution side of the business because it's so important, which kind of plays into how, how have I grown. I've hired really, really good people around me, I think is the best way to put it. You know, I think the executive management team that we have now comes from, you know, a valid, like, you know, from Mark, who, who co-founded it with me, Christine on the same side, on, on the tax side, you know, two of the best of what they do. And then, you know, Richard Lemkin on, on the on the technology side, George and Kevin on the finance side, and now we've just hired uh, Andrew Desmond as a COO, you know, former head of um, financial services for Accenture. So, you know, we haven't been afraid um, to hire the best in their fields and uh, to come and support the organization. Um, and that helps me. And when I, when I see businesses, I think some founder-led businesses or founder, you know, entrepreneur businesses, what they really struggle to do is listen and they really struggle to to hire talent around them that, you know, we'll put them under pressure. Um, and I think that's something that it's not something I've ever been afraid to do. And, you know, thankfully, it's not something that worries me, you know, so having the best people you can have in that organization. So it's not just having 330 bodies. It's it's the, the, the talent level um, that comes with that. The, the team internally are sick of me talking about the Netflix book around talent density, but, you know, I don't agree with everything in it, but I think the talent density piece is is probably one of the, the single biggest enablers to hype. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, that, that you touched on listening. I find that listening is everything, whether it's to customers, to employees, or to investors. So would you mind expanding a little bit more on what you meant with listening there? I think, yeah, I agree. Listening is so important, especially when you're in a, um, a global organization like we are dealing with global customers um, and global teams. Um, how people how people uh, approach a solution or look for help differs from place to place, and 
you know, so you've got to actually listen to understand what the problem is or what the pitch is or what the what the the plan is. Um, and I think listening so you can actually understand, you know, I think context is really, really important. So understanding the context of someone's decision or someone's um, motivation is really important before you actually make a decision on whether it's right or wrong or how to deal with it. And I think being too too snappy in your decision making or being too uh, reactive or too aggressive in your decision making based on not listening is really bad culturally for an organization. I think it puts fear into the organization. Whereas I think listening and really, as you mentioned, listening to our customers, you know, you mentioned, you know, I think there's a huge lot of number of businesses around the world who think they have the best idea in the world, but they've never actually asked anyone who's going to use it whether it's the best idea in the world or whether it's just the best idea in their own heads. Um, so, you know, we do customer forums, we do customer workshops, customer thinkings a lot. We want to know what's going to make a difference for them uh, as opposed to us kind of prescribing what's going to be best for them. So I think both on the customer side in terms of evolving your product in that way, it's critical to listen to the market and to your customers. And internally, from a cultural standpoint, during hypergrowth, I just think listening is more, it's more important. Yeah, and, and, and on the hypergrowth side also, you guys have the 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 M and A side that you've been you know quite active on. I mean, you closed this uh, acquisition as well that you know I'm sure that really helped in in taking things to the next level. You know, unfortunately, as they say, most acquisitions fail because it's just like part of the integration process. Uh, but I guess in this case, you know, it seems that things you know definitely worked out for you guys. You know, it also it gave you presence in the U.S. But walk 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 us through how that journey was and how you ensured that this was going to succeed. The acquisition piece is, is interesting because when you when you look at it now, um, it was a, a really good decision and a great idea and has worked out well. Uh, if you were to look back at the, the reasoning as to why we did it and what we thought we were going to gain from it and how we were going to do it, you know, this back to the theoretical versus the actual, the theory and the actual were very, very different. And um, I think that's one of the big learnings, you know. You can come up with all these great ideas, but life gets in the way. Um, so the acquisition, you know, ultimately Expaticor was a partner of ours prior. So like we knew the team and uh, we knew some of their customers. But I think how we had managed envisaging the changeover to it, you know, was a lot more difficult and slower than what we thought it would be. So it cost a lot more money to do it. Um, in terms of our own time, capital time and capital to actually implement the change and migrate the customers um, and the opportunity cost is probably greater. And the outcome was probably greater eventually than we thought it was going to be later on. But I think that first 18 months, you know, because it was, it was my idea in the first place. Uh, so when I was reporting back to the board was, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't always comfortable in terms of how it was going, but, you know, we always believed that it was, it was the right decision and that the, the basic fundamentals as to why we were trying to do it were right. Uh, but the actual tactical execution of it changed so greatly. And that was, again, that's down to people. Uh, it's down, down to people and culture and where we, you know, the one thing that we, you don't know until you really work closely with, a, with people and it's not for the right or wrong is, is their cultural desire in terms of, is their vision the same as ours? And, um, that was the area that we probably thought we probably gave we probably took for granted that it was without questioning it deeply enough and then the knock-on impact of that 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 had over an 18-month period was 
not overly challenging on the business, but it was, um, you know, thankfully because we had support of a big group behind us. But, um, you know, and thankfully we got a good outcome in the end of it. But yeah, look, looking back on it now, when I look back on my notes and my business case and oh, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do, this is what the outcome is going to be. Like you might say, that that's probably a work of fiction now at this stage. That's incredible. And and I guess you know on on your on your side too, you must have access to a tremendous amount of data as well. So I guess you know from a customer perspective, I mean, how have they grown? You know, over time. I mean, what are some of the insights or some of the things that that you've seen? Yeah, we are very lucky, and um, it wasn't a strategy that we knew COVID was going to come. But um, because the the main verticals were in our big tech, pharma, and financial services, um. So they're all very resilient, but specifically in big tech and some of the financial services, specifically in the fund management that we're in, um, they have just seen, like, you know, the fund management especially is a highly acquisitive um, um, part of vertical. Um, so a lot of our organizations, they're acquiring lots of businesses and seeing as our revenue model is based off of headcount, like, you know, those companies grow astronomically with us like you know some of them can grow three four x with us just by buying companies over a two three year period their head can't grow that quickly um and same in it's same in the tech and cyber um you know those organizations are, are growing not only their head count in the jurisdictions they're in but growing into new jurisdictions all the time so you know our average when we look at the metrics like you know our average uh, over a three-year period net revenue retention is like 195 percent um, which is, you know, until we kind of really got into the details last year, was, you know, an eye-opener um, for us to understand that, you know, on average, our, our companies almost double what we expect their payer or a contract to be to what it eventually is after only a three-year period. So to be able to to grow new business at about kind of 60 70% um, uh, CAGR, and then on top of that for your underlying business to grow at that rate as well, um, it gives it a nice, a nice mix and a, a nice um, rocket uh, underneath the top the bonnet. Absolutely. So, so imagine, Rory, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Imidis is fully realized. What does that world look like? Our vision is very clear. Like we want to be the first real-time global payroll uh, platform in the world. Um, nobody's got anywhere near it. Um, you know, we've got. In our mission, we've got the, the, the process to a, a touchless payroll process on a global scale through through a single platform, uh, something that had never really been done before. Uh, and our vision is to be, like, you know, I don't like aligning it, but it's similar to being the workday in global payroll, where, you know, from a customer user experience and an automation standpoint, we are the undoubted number one. And when I say the undoubted number one, I mean the undoubted number one for really good organizations. And, we're not a we're not a product, nor do we seek to be a product at the moment. And we do have the capability to do it, but I think where we are right now in the next three years, the the enterprise market's big enough. So if we can be what I would say internally, if we can be the best of what we do for the best organizations in the world, um, you know, we're gonna be really successful in hitting our numbers. You know, I think like we're on track to hit a hundred million in recurring revenue over that period in that three year period. Um, so that would be a great milestone to hit as well. And that's all through organic growth. Organic growth. I mean, that's like the holy grail. So uh, that's amazing. So so, so then why don't you expand on that? I mean, how, how do you guys think about organic growth and, and why, you know, at what point do you make that decision? Because obviously now, you know, people get really lost very quickly with going into advertising and allocating a bunch of money into that. So 
So how did you guys really think about organic growth as you were thinking about strategy? Yeah, like all of our growth today, it's been organic phenomenally outside of the acquisition back in 2017, which was, wasn't really a revenue acquisition. So, you know, we've gone from basically zero to 35 million in that period of time in, in contract recurring revenue, um, all organically. Um, and we're, we'll finish this year north of, of, of north of 50 million. So number of uh, routes to market on that, like uh, as, a, as an organization, when we started off, we were, you know, like most startups, a scrappy uh, organization, probably a little bit of guerrilla, uh, guerrilla sales, um, you know, on just on the ground in some of the main, um, the main areas like the American Payroll Association, you know, we were very targeted in what we did around certain webinars for specific buying cohorts. Um, and as we've grown that out, we've built now, you know, partnerships with Workday, Ceridian, Ultimate, um, SAP and Oracle. So, you know, the channel channel sales side now is really, really um, increasing greatly. So, and then obviously with the marketing piece, you know, our marketing team now in terms of, you know, inbound sales and how much we spend now around um, digital marketing, et cetera, with the two capital rounds has allowed us to do do a lot more of it, which has kind of increased our, our pipeline. Uh, and we've increased the sales team quite significantly. We were very, you know, in the first round, the funding was very focused on the capability and execution. Um, so, you know, we, we do a lot of sales through referral. We did or historically a lot through referral sales. Um, and we have very strong customer references, which is tough to get in payroll. So, um, you know, we're now being begun to be spoken about a lot more, but the, the commercial team now is you know, 40, 45 people. So, you know, we've invested quite heavily in that. And, you know, so we have a mixture of go-to-market from kind of a direct sales model, the marketing and the channel. And, but we've, yeah, back to people. We've, we've spent time and money to get good people in there, um, which helps. Of course. And I think our average, our average deal size, you know, so we're not, to do to hit our numbers you're talking 40 50 deals a year it's not as if we're on the recurring element of it recurring revenue element of it is is really good so um i think that's why it's so exciting you know as we continue to turn the dial and the opportunity that's in the market so like you know to me global payroll is still so like untapped like that the the greenfield or brownfield is still out there is massive and the amount of our customers are still a high the high majority of our customers are and prospects are consolidating for the first time and um, so it still shows how much um, market share is out there to grab very cool so one of the questions that i have rory typically here for the guests that come on the show is imagine if you have the opportunity to go back in time so i put you into this time machine back to 2016 or even earlier when the idea of images you know like really came into perspective if you had the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with your younger self, and during that chat, you could give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Look after the back end of the organization, I would say. Um, you know, we're growing. We, we grew very quickly and we continue to grow very quickly. But having having someone who understands, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, companies I find are either product product driven or sales driven um but understanding the operational side of the business is crucial so i would have hired somebody who understood fp a data uh, reporting capabilities a little bit earlier than we did um so i would advise myself to not always think about just the, the go forward look at you know what has to come behind you and uh, so what is the organizational debt that you have to manage and um, 
and bring someone in to do it. Bring someone in who's really, really good and sits at the top table to do it. And that will allow you to focus just purely on the on, on looking forward. I love it. So Rory, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, uh, like obviously the website, Midas.com. Um, I'm always open to anyone who wants to talk to me for Rory.Keller at Midas.com. I think it's kind of one of our core components of our own organization where you know anyone wants to talk to me. Uh, as, you, as I said earlier on, I think you can you can gain a lot from listening. So you don't always have to take it on board, but it helps. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me. LinkedIn as well. Amazing. Well, Rory, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks, Manian. Andrew, pleasure to be with you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.